Thank you so much, John, for reading God's Word. And thank you all for joining us online, on-site, some of us, the singers, the musicians, and the tech people who are serving us. We're going to, and we're going to be exploring on what really changes things in life. And so if you speak to parents with young children, and children when they are younger, more innocent, more naive, more immature, whichever term you want to use, may be very easily irritated or frustrated. And when they are irritated or frustrated, they need something that will change that immediately. And if you ask parents teaching young kids, three years old, five years old, or what triggers them, what frustrates them, and how to deal with that trigger, they will usually say, I don't want daddy now. Daddy now is triggering me. Of course, they use, don't use the word trigger. I don't want cheche. I don't want titi here. So it's the absence of someone or the absence of something that will bring about the change in their life, at least for that moment. And so what brings change? It might be the absence of something or someone that we don't like. On the other hand, we might read something, we might come across something like this. Wei Wei is a seven-year-old boy in Taiwan, a fan of Super Mario and uh, likes sports and indeed won third place in a track race. In April this year, he asked his parents because he started to get interested in, in judo. So he signed up for the class. And in one of the classes that he went to, something went awry. Because, you know, in judo classes, you're thrown, thrown, and he was thrown repeatedly, even as he called out for help. And what he called, he, he said, he said screaming on a video, my, my leg, my head. I, I don't want to be thrown anymore. But his coach and his friends keep throwing him. In total, his family said he was thrown 27 times and it was recorded. Wei Wei eventually passed out during that session, taken to hospital where doctors found he had suffered severe brain damage. He's now in coma and on life support. His mother said, I still remember that morning when I took him to the school, judo school. He turned around and said, Mommy, Goodbye. By night, that goodbye had turned out to be literally true. What could have brought change into Wei Wei's life? Not the absence of something, but the presence of someone who cared enough to interfere. And so it sparked a national debate in Taiwan, which is still raging. Could not anyone, some of the parents were there watching this, could not have interfered? intervene? And so we need to ask ourselves, what brings change? And especially now in the light of the global resurgence, even after we are vaccinated, we could have variants of this. So when will this COVID-19 come to an end? And this change is not simply for children, and this change is not simply for someone under threat in a sport. This change is for all of us. We've been vaccinated, we've got our two jabs. What now? Variance? Once you understand that along the, the journey of life, you and I need to ask very serious questions about what? What will bring change forever into the universe, into the world, and into your heart and my heart in our relationship with God? And Exodus chapter 11 and 12 gets to the heart of that. To understand this, there are three hours that change the world. The first slide comes on. 
is firstly the revelation of God. God reveals himself by speaking his word firstly to his people, Israel. And then at the heart of that revelation, God redeems it not purposelessly in a vacuum. He, re he reveals that at the heart of it, he's out to redeem his people and through his people to redeem the world. And as he does this, he wants us to remember who he is and what he does in terms of redeeming his people. And so this portion is huge and we can only but summarise. And it can understand it in terms of like a hamburger. In, in what sense? Chapter 11 starts it. We call it the intro or the prologue. And so let's see the next slide comes on. On the left-hand side. And all the verses are there. And then it will end in chapter 12. And chapter 12, the bottom right of that hamburger. And in between are instructions for the Passover in Egypt and then the remembrance of the Passover will spend most time on the prologue. And once you and I understand that, by the grace of God, it would be much easier to take home what really changes the world. So the prologue begins, chapter 11, verse 1, announcement by God of the ten plague. And then favour to Israel by the Egyptians, unthinkable. They will give you silver and gold, whatever you ask of them. And comes the term, plunder the Egyptians. Then in chapter 11, verse 4, the Lord, the Lord was always in Israel's life, beginning in Genesis. He worked in the life of the patriarchs and then became 12 tribes and now in the nation, the Lord at work in Egypt. And then by chapter 11, verse 5, the 10 plague unleashed. And we need to ask ourselves, what is the distinctive thing about the 10 plague, which is so different to the 9 that went before? And then it's going to end with two things. The cry of the Egyptians after God unleashes the ten plague to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt. And then finally, the command to leave. When you read chapter 12, like the hamburger or the sandwich, the bottom, it has that same themes being pounded home. And so we want to understand, by God's grace, the uniqueness of the ten plague. And so with the first question, Revelation, the first issue, Revelation, we ask, so what if God revealed Himself? So what if God does not reveal Himself to really understand this? Did you notice in the nine plagues, Moses, God's chosen servant, the mediator between the holy God and His people, the holy God and Pharaoh and Egypt, Moses had repeated the appeal nine times. By now, it had come to an end. No more negotiations. And Moses, at the end of chapter 11, he's hot with anger. He leaves Pharaoh's presence. And Pharaoh's heart is unchanged. And can, you sort of, can we sort of walk into that situation and paraphrase it? From Pharaoh's perspective, plague number one, plague number two, plague number three, and so, yes, the blood, the frogs, the lies, the flies, the animals, the balls, the hill, the locusts, the darkness. You could be thinking by plague number three or four, maybe after the first cycle, before the next one begins. It's not as if he knows. He's probably saying, this bunch of losers, this bunch of slaves, and the loser of a god, if they, if they have a god, because they are losers, they are slaves, he must be a loser of a god. What are they up to now? Plague after plague, 
oh no, do, you, do they have something else up their sleeve? Does the God of losers and the loser God have something up his sleeves that will change my mind? In short, the nine plagues fail. They fail to do what? The nine plagues fail to achieve God's purpose. It would seem so. Israel are still slaves. Freedom is just as elusive. And if the, you add the two things together, Israel are still slaves. Freedom to go and worship God is still elusive. God has failed. It just means at the end of nine plagues, at the end of chapter 10, what do we have? We have this. Thus Pharaoh says, triumphs and victorious over thus what the Lord says. That's one way to read it. That's a mistaken way to read it. The right way to read it is that the nine plagues, in the words of one commentator, were probationary. They are not meant to succeed. Not meant to succeed to soften Pharaoh's heart to let God's people go. In fact, it was meant to warn Pharaoh and Egypt. It was meant to test Pharaoh and Egypt. It was meant to confirm and indeed that he would harden his heart no matter how many chances the true and living God gave him. And so, what did that mean? Because we said last week, God reveals himself for a purpose. It's for a right response to him, not a wrong response. And so Revelation responds that those who don't bow to God's warnings will one day bend to God's judgment. And one of the first to learn this as a nation would be the nation of Egypt. You don't want to bow to his warnings. He will make you bend to his judgment. So friends, the nine plagues did not fail. They served their purpose. They were warnings. They were not the real thing. They were not the real McCoy. So what does that mean in terms of the ten plague? The distinctiveness of this ten plague sent by the true and living God to the most powerful man and the most powerful empire at that time and to all of us. You and me must not prematurely mistakenly confuse God's patience with God's impotence or God's powerlessness. You and I must not prematurely and worse still mistakenly conclude divine warnings for divine judgment finally. Thus says the Lord will eventually triumph over thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh will not have the last word. God will have the last word. So it starts with, thus says the Lord. You know how it will end? Why the ten plague is distinctive? Because it's not just thus says the Lord. It's thus acts the Lord. It's thus God, this is the way God will act. Not just what He says. If what He says doesn't come true, why believe Him? And when God acts, what is the message for? Both His enemies and his people. God forgets none of his enemies. They will all fall under his judgment. And what's the message for his people? God forsakes none of his people. No one will be left behind. He knows how to redeem. And if there was a third message from this, God's word cannot be rejected and God's word cannot be ignored forever. 
You know, there used to be a store here. I do not know whether it's still around. It's a Forever 21. But that phrase is around. You celebrate birthdays and you want to be forever 18 or forever 21. And that is wishful thinking, forever young. And then this whole passage screams, not forever 21, forever God will be supreme. Forever there is a true and living God. Forever it will be about His sovereignty. And as we saw last week, we sang again, there is none like Him. There is none but Him. And no matter how many idols Egypt worships, from the river now which they consider the cradle of civilization, to the frogs, to the locusts, to everything in between, worshipping nature as idols for their security, that is forever wrong. And that will forever grieve the, the heart of God. And that will forever earn the wrath of God. Our man-made idolatries and our man-made securities. So I just want to slow down here and just pause. I do not know whether you've listened in any shape and form to the Word of God, to the voice of God speaking to you in the past few days. Even more so in the insecurity of the resurgence all around the world. And so we need to hear afresh. Thus says the Lord, and thus acts the Lord. It is to our own peril that we think that our human voices and our human idols will speak the last word about all that happens in the universe, all that happens in our world, and all that happens in your life and my life. And so sometimes when you walk through a time of prosperity, your prosperity and success speaks louder than the voice of God. Sometimes when you walk through a time of sorrow and pain, your pain and sorrow speaks louder than the voice of God. Between the two polar opposites of prosperity and success, where everything you touch turns to gold, and then poverty and sorrow and pain, where nothing you touch turns to anything good, you might drown out the voice of God. I plead that you and me do not fall into either polarities. So revelation, what's so important about listening to God's revelation? It saves us from listening to the false idolatries of this world. And when you listen to idolatries to determine your identity, your security and your destiny, you and me will always live the fake life and so Revelation saves us from half-truths and lies that Satan throws into the universe. Are you listening to God's revelation? Or are you standing on the edge like Pharaoh and Egypt? That's the first hour that will save you. The second hour that will bring tremendous, that will bring lifelong change is redemption. And here under redemption, we want to ask two questions. So what if I don't believe in God's redemption? Then secondly, so what if I do believe in God's redemption? And if you wanted to add those two things up, so finally, what on earth is God's redemption? Before I choose whether to believe or not to believe in it. Here is chapter 11 verse 4 to answer the first one. 
So what if I don't believe in God's redemption? Chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh in the highest court, who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl in their system, in their social economic system, which is the bottom of the food chain, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The phrase I wanted you to wanted to explain to you is in the bowl. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. What does that mean? What does that mean? By the ten plague, the warnings, the probation, the preparation is over, as we saw. By the ten plague, did you notice? God will no longer speak or act through Moses or Aaron. There'll be no more mediators. There'll be no more middlemen or women. It's just God directly where? God directly, we call it F to F, face to face. God directly face to face with Pharaoh and Egypt. And so here is God, the true and living God, in a most idolatrous land, Egypt, rescuing his people to the true worship of God. And that's something we need to take note. So what if I don't believe in God's redemption? So God might do a face-to-face -face with you. A close relative was always responsible from young, wasn't a bright student, but he did well enough to get into university and then he became the sole bread earner. And he tried his best. He worked at the job and he worked hard at it. He supported his sister who unfortunately had a mental breakdown and she had to be put in an institution. And he paid for her month after month, year after year, not inexpensive, looking after someone with mental illness in an institution. And then he had to care for his own mother because his dad had passed on. Very sadly, some years later, his sister from her mental unwellness died at that home, and she died, was found out, from just drinking too much. She thought that drinking will give her good health, and she literally, if you overdrink, you can drown. There's a term in there. And she drowned from overdrinking. Soon after she passed away, her mother passed away. And so, this man, he had lost the only two people in, in his life. And so he decided that he would now be carefree, he will now live for himself because he had no one to live for. He is free from all his burdens and responsibility. And so no one to live for, no one to live with. He collected a small sum from insurance. And this is what he decided. And what did he decide? He will live it up. He will empty out his bank account. And then because he had no one to live with and no one to live for, he would take his life. He will live it up. He will empty out his bank account. And then... It's the end. And so he lived that way for a while. He got into a relationship with bar hostesses. He went on a spiral. His day became night. His night became day. You know, when you live without God, wine, woman, and song, that's the story of the prodigal son told by Jesus in the New Testament. Your day becomes night. Your night becomes day. It's wine, woman, and song. It's just... <laughs> and one day in broad daylight, in broad daylight, he missed a step and he fell into a huge monsoon drain. And the crowd gathered. And he felt not just embarrassed, 
as he fell into the monsoon rain in broad daylight, how could I have missed it? He knew. He knew. What is it that he knew? He knew it was God's face-to-face encounter with him. Because prior to this, he had been going to church for a while. And after his sister died and after his mom died, his, all his questions and all his angst and anger against God just overtook him. And all the voices and the lies of Satan that live for yourself, live for yourself, just overtook him. He knew as he sat there, bruised and battered in that monsoon rain, it was God confronting him. God saying to him, you fool, stop drowning in self-pity. You fool, stop throwing away your life. And then, then somebody helped him up. And a light bulb went on in his life. And that Sunday, he went back to church. As he went back to church, in his down and out state, almost down to zero in his bank account, because what was his philosophy? Empty it out, live it to the full, take my life. And one of the first person he met in the church service was somebody who offered him a job. Talk about a face-to-face encounter with God. And when he told me this story, he said, oh, Uncle Chris, I, I, I fell there. And I knew it was God rescuing me. I couldn't run anymore. I knew he had cornered me. Remember last week from Exodus 7 to 10? With the nine plagues, it was not just the sovereignty of God, but as John mentioned in his prayer, there was under God's sovereignty, God's great ability, His prescience, His knowledge, His all-knowing, His all-seeing. He knows how to separate. He knows to identify His people. He knows how to exclude His people from the plagues. So we saw in chapter 8, verse 22, he knows exactly where his people live, in Goshen. And so he will not strike Goshen. In chapter 9, verse 46, God knows how to separate them and separate their cattle from the Egyptian cattle that we struck. In chapter 9, verse 26, God knows how to shelter his people from the hailstorm that will come and threaten them. In chapter 10, verse 23, God knows how to give light to his people in terrifying pitch darkness before the total terrifying thing of the firstborn of everything in Egypt dying. Now this is one side of God's revealing of His character. He's sovereign. And part of His sovereignty, He knows how to separate. It's what we call the truth, the doctrine about election and separation, election and separation. But just in case we don't get the full revelation from God, just because God's of God's election and separation, between the righteous and the unrighteous, those who belong to Him and those who oppose Him. Israel, by the time you get to chapter 11 onwards, had to do her part in experiencing this holy God, in experiencing His redemption. Why? Because the second side of redemption is, so what if I do believe in the redemption? Remember the first part was, So what if I don't believe you will have a face-to-face encounter with God? As Moses and Egypt did. Then you ask the flip side question, so what if I do remember and do believe, I do believe in God's redemption? 
So what? So from this point onwards, it's no more passive process beneficiaries. God knows our location, Goshen. God knows our cattle. God knows how to cover us from the hailstone. God knows how to give us light. All the things are done to them passively up to that point. But from plague number 10, the distinctive thing about plague number 10, they no longer were passive, but now they are active partners. In what way? They had to get up. And between the 10th day and the 14th day, they had to go and find a lamb without blemish. A perfect lamb without blemish. And not let down their guard. They are to look for this lamb without blemish to represent each Israelite and each household. And then they got to kill that lamb. And after they kill that lamb, they got to sprinkle that lamb. Yes, the separation from God will now need the consecration of God's people. And that's the double key that is there from this point onwards. So what if I do believe in God's redemption? I must step out in faith. I must step out in obedience. Remember the redemption formula? The redemption formula with three parts to it? You find it all the way from Genesis. You find it in Exodus. And what's the redemption formula? The danger to God's people is at its highest. The evil against God's people in this case is at its highest. And God's people is at their lowest. And then God's promise to deliver seems totally weak, is at its weakest. Remember? Now, can you imagine? After nine plagues, that instead of softening the heart of Pharaoh, it hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And then God had to tell them to go and do this. Do what? Find a lamb, kill the lamb, and then spread the blood over the door, and your whole redemption will hinge on what? Your whole redemption will hinge on your whole redemption from the most powerful man who has oppressed you, from the most powerful nation that you cannot wriggle out of. And all you got to do is kill a lamb and spread his blood over your doors? This doesn't sound like a great way to be redeemed. The danger is at its highest. The people, God's people is at their work lowest. And God's promise to deliver seems, against all odds, seems the most foolish. It seems at its weakest. But they have to go out and do this. And when they do this, they are spared. And so, so what if I do believe? So what if you do believe? You have to step out and take part in, from human eyes and human perspective, the most ridiculous, the most ridiculous way to be safe, to be redeemed. And God always has this. So what am I to do to believe? if I believe in God's way of redemption, we step out in faith. Listen to this key verses in chapter 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beasts. The ultimate battle is not Yahweh versus Pharaoh, it's who Pharaoh believes in, who he has given his life, his loyalty to, 
Who has given his love to? He will bank his life on all his man-made idols. It is the true and living God against all the false gods of Egypt. I will execute the judgments. So that's what you need to do. To recognize that you and me have man-made idolatries and securities in our life that you're so used to, so addicted to rescue you from any moment of your fallenness and sinfulness. This is the second thing to take note. So what if I don't believe in God's redemption? So what if I do believe in God's redemption? So what is God's redemption? The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see you, I will pass over you. I hope you picked up my intentional mistake in reading the bold words. For God doesn't say, for when I see you, my people, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So what is this redemption? It boils down to the blood of a lamb. And from this point onwards, the blood of the lamb becomes a most important truth in terms of the holy God's relationship with his people whom he wants to save to worship him. Why blood? Why lamb? Why lamb without a blemish? It's a perfect animal for the perfection of God and his holiness. Something to match God's holiness. Something to satisfy God's wrath. Not something. The only thing you never give to God anything that falls short of His perfection, from His justice to His judgment, from His holiness to His saving of us. 12.13, what does that drive home? Firstly, the blood of the Lamb, and finally, the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God that was slain for us. It is to drive home this important message. We must see the seriousness of our idolatry. And we must see the costliness of God's redemption of us. I want to ask you, what sins have you committed in the last week of thought and word and deed? And what sins have you grown numb or indifferent to that you could think this kind of thoughts of God, of others, such sinful thoughts of others, and live with no repercussions, that you could say such things towards God and towards others and think that it has no repercussions, no offense. The way God created us and the, way, the reason why God redeems us is for us to see the seriousness of our life lived by our own autonomy and life lived by the worship of God. And so, what does that mean? It means this. Deliverance will hinge on a lamb and its blood. I mean, how foolish can it be that things will be corrected in the universe? Ultimate change will come to the universe, to the world, and into your life and my life, in our relationship with God, on a lamb and its blood. This is what will satisfy God's rightful wrath against us. And this is what will secure our salvation and safety. 
it feels like foolishness of the utmost degree that I could commit myself to something as simple as we kill this lamb, we spread the blood, and we won't die? Yes, it will always be the case. It began with God redeeming Israel this way. It will end with Jesus dying on the cross this way. That's why his death, his cross, is foolishness to the world. So why are the ten plagues dis- why is the ten plague distinctive and different to the other nine plagues? The ten plague is different and distinctive. It stands out and stands alone because it showcases the three R's that changes the world. The revelation of God, the redemption of God. And because this is so great, it will change everything between us as sinners and a holy God. It will change our identity. It will change our destiny. This act must be remembered. So sandwiched between chapter 11 and the end of verse 12, as we saw, is the heart of it. And the heart of it is the unique Passover that Israel will celebrate in Egypt. She will celebrate this once and for all and never celebrate again in Egypt. And then the remembrance of this as she comes out of Egypt. And so we need to distinguish between the two. And between the two, sorry, I'll go backwards. Between the two. This is the only way, as one writer said, the Passover. Before the Passover, that was celebrated, that was given instructions for them to celebrate in chapter 12. Did you know that before the Passover, Israel, Israel could not leave Egypt. After the Passover, Israel would not be allowed to go back to Egypt and its idols. This is the new beginning, but it's the new beginning based on the past. And so everything, every instruction from finding that unblemished lamb to not eating leavened bread is to signal separation from idolatry, separation from sin, separation from all human efforts to save ourselves, and then dedication and consecration to the true and living God. I will now, from now on, believe in one God and His one way of saving us. One way of redeeming us. And so, if you get that, my friends, sounds a little bit heavy. It means this, when it comes to its fulfillment if Jesus. You and me must not be spiritual capos. And we learn this all the way from Genesis, for every time Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph tried to do things their own way, especially beginning with Abraham and Jacob, as soon as they tried to help God, they messed it up. We must never help God along. You must never make self-rescue with God's rescue. And by the time we come to Jesus and the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, if we, take, if we add anything to Jesus and the cross, we take everything away from Christ and the cross. You believe that? You believe that? You know, the key word throughout the book of Exodus is the word no. Every single person that God revealed His redemption plan of 
And God tells them to remember the three hours that will change anyone who encounters God. Every single person, beginning with Moses, all begin with, I don't know who you are. And Israel will not know who you are. And Pharaoh will not know who you are. And Egypt will not know who you are. The word know is one of the biggest words. It's whether you know God in all the fullness of that. It's personal knowing, it's not intellectual knowing. And what do we mean by that? Do you know the full weight of your sin? And do you know the full weight or weightlessness of your Saviour? What do we mean by that? Sometimes in life, friends, we do not know the full weight of sinning against others and others sinning against us. And so here was Pharaoh, inhumanity to fellow men, but he was totally indifferent to how much the Hebrew people were suffering under him. He increased their, his inhumanity towards them. You will make the same number of bricks, but without straw. They call out, they call out, please lighten our load. But he's deaf to it. And sometimes you've got to feel the full weight of your threatening circumstances. You've got to feel the full weight of evil against you before you can feel the full weight of God delivering you. What might that mean? Some of us may have to feel the full weight as you are bullied in school or bullied on the internet. As you stand up as young folk in primary school and secondary school, just simply because you believe in God and believe in Jesus, you're now increasingly shunned. And I've listened to enough people over the last 30 years when they are bullied in school, you know, the, the weight of it, you need to know the full weight, the full sting of being shunned, of being oppressed, of being seduced. I was watching a video, a video of how it works out in, in the West that if we choose to stand up for Christ, especially in terms of sexuality, it might get a little bit rough for you. And so this man in Perth in, in Australia, he is a, quite a famous photographer, wedding photographer, and a couple came up to him and said that they wanted him to do their wedding, but he had told them, in knowing their circumstances, that he could not and would not do it for same-sex marriages. And lo and behold, all hell broke loose for him. The social media storming of him and the accusation of him didn't stop until he himself was going downhill mentally in every way. This Equal Opportunity Commission came after him and it seemed like his whole future was gone. He felt the full weight of this. All I did was to tell them kindly, go somewhere else, that I'm convicted by this and I, I, I cannot do this. He just spoke honestly about this until somebody pointed him to a Christian group that came to his aid. That what he did wasn't wrong and what he did wasn't discrimination and what he did was his, his right to believe in a God. And sometimes you have to feel the full weight around you. And this clinical psychiatrist was sharing about one of his patients, one of his clients, who suffered from acute fear and anxiety. And no matter how many times they had gone through the sessions, she didn't seem to kick it. 
And then one day he came up with something that he thought might be helpful. He rang around to a few places and he asked her for her permission. Now because you're so fearful ultimately of dying, I'm going to take you to a mortuary to see a dead person. And finally he made the arrangements and she went. First time she was face to face with her ultimate fear in life, feeling the full weight of that, full weight of what controlled her. And then he said to her, it's all right, you can just wait around, touch, say how you feel, overcome. And slowly but surely, she overcame. I want to ask you, have you felt the full weight of living in the fallenness of this world? No matter how it turns up in school, in business, in life, even with your mental state. For unless you feel the full weight of that, you will not feel the weightlessness when you trust in Jesus to rescue you. That's what it means to know. It's not a cognitive know, it's to know fully and truly. And so Pastor Sun Kun was leading us through a wonderful devotion this week in staff meeting. And he quoted the devotion from Otland, right? I think Reverend Otland, who wrote, that being saved by Christ in Christ alone is like putting your life and experiencing the helium balloon go up. A helium balloon go up and all falls off. Whatever self-rescue you thought you could do, you need the weightlessness of Jesus bearing the cross for you and me. So what if I don't believe? You might come face to face with the rough and the judgment of God. So what if you do believe? You must step up in faith and stick your life and stand out as they stood out with the blood of the Lamb. And we may have to stand out and say, I believe in Jesus, that He's the, he's the rescue. There is no other way for the world to be saved, even now through a COVID period. Now is the best time to lead people to the worship of God. And the way to lead people to the worship of God is to share Jesus. There is no other way to lead people to the worship of God, as John Piper says, that mission exists because worship doesn't. And so, we come to the end of our time asking, do you believe that these three hours of God, sin and the distinctive template, revelation, redemption, and remembrance, every time you tune into this, what are we doing Every time we tune into this, whether we preach the gospel or we do the communion, we are remembering. We are remembering that there's no other person who can save us, no other way to save us, but Jesus loving us at the ultimate cost. Turn to Him, believe in Him, and lay your burdens upon Him. Let's stand and pray together before we sing our closing song. All that you say to us, is true. Truth that sets us free from the lies of this world. We thank you then for your revelation. Your revelation rescues us from lies and the half-truths of the evil one. We thank you then for your redemption. For your redemption provides the only way for us to be rescued from your rightful wrath, to be rescued from our autonomy and our pride and our rebellion, 
to rescue us from all our vain self-rescues. We thank you ultimately for your remembrance, your call for us to remember. And every time we gather as your people, we remember, for faith comes from the hearing of your word and may be willing to step forth and take part and proclaim Jesus as the Lord of our life. In his mighty name we always pray. Amen.